Welcome to Matizzi Stories, a podcast by the Matizzi Museums exploring Matizzi area history through people, places, and events. In the last episode, we ended with the Wind River Reservation welcoming bison back after more than 150 years of absence. That could be the end of the bison story for now, but it's not. Instead, we return to archaeology and paleontology. The disciplines may be thought of as ways to learn about the past, but in learning about the past, we can actually inform present decisions. The most important thing is that the archaeological record represents a long-term record. And we know that, that ecosystems evolve over geologic time, even though there's, there's perturbations that are decade-level perturbations that change. But, but the record is actually much longer than, than just decades or even the span of a century. So the archaeological record and, um, and also the paleontological record, and to use a term that Lee Lyman, I, I think, has coined, you know, the paleozoological record. So that encompasses both, both data sets, really can, can provide us with, with that long-term record of how these systems came into being um, over the course of, of several different climatic regimes and how those, you know, bison and other animal and other species adapted to those climate regimes and how we can use those as models to move forward into contemporary issues of climate change. You know, we, we know that, that we've seen these climate um, regimes before, but over, you know, right now we're seeing a very much more condensed time period, but we can use those as models to start to understand where, where do we need to go? What do we need to do? Um, to manage these wild lands and these wild species um, in perpetuity and in context of, of future climate change. Um, so, but I think you know what's um, important is to try and get people to understand that we we in a lot of cases do have some very fine grained data sets that we can use, um, and I think that's kind of a then at least in my discussions with with wildlife biologists is they don't think that. Our data sets are, are fine scaled enough to to address those those types of questions that they have, um, where they collect data, um, you know, year in and year out, um, and get to see those species. But we do have data sets that are that fine scale that can that can address those types of issues. You know, I think it's incumbent upon us archaeologists to take um, is to take case studies and and to show how this is how this is relevant. You know, we we have fine scale records that come out of rock shelters and caves that we can look at look at changes in in uh, in community structure on very short periods of time at very high high resolution um, we have archaeological mass kill events such as the horner site um, and cody so we have essentially um, a frozen moment in time where we can study that herd as it was nine thousand years ago um, that's unique we you know it's, it'd be very difficult to do that with a living herd in yellowstone so uh, again, I think that's that's the big thing is to you know is for us as archaeologists to to provide those those case studies. You know, we can continue to to talk about it, and and you know, I've I've written a few papers and and book chapters and stuff about general ideas about how to do it, and and taken some examples of it. Um, but again, it's you know it's important for us to really show show how that works. And again, another example was um, you know when I was working in Yellowstone. It was during a time period when wolves were being reintroduced. And one of the, the big um, pushbacks that they had from local communities was that wolves were not native to the ecosystem. They had been pushed up there by, by Euro-American settlement, and they were only recent inhabitants of, uh, 
of Yellowstone, the great Yellowstone ecosystem. So why are we, you know, reinducing this, this animal that, that may not have been a native species? So um, Yellowstone and, you know, with the help and prodding of, of Paul Shaleri gave me a little bit of money and I wrote up a chapter for the reintroduction of the wolf that went to Congress. And show we had 25,000 years of wolf record here. So that, you know, so that kind of quelched that that argument, I think, although there's was people that still don't believe that. But but yeah, again, I mean, that was, you know, a, a pretty straightforward example of, of how the archaeological and paleontological record can can help with management decisions and help support management decisions. You might remember Dr. Jeff Martin doing something similar with bison and wildlife management for the Grand Canyon. This relationship between wildlife management and the archaeological and paleontological record is one of the reasons that the Matizzi Museums began a project in September 2020 called the Bison of the Bighorn Basin. We asked members to bring in their bison crania so we could measure them. The measurements were established in 1947 and are used to look at bison cranial morphology, which, as we covered earlier, changes quite dramatically throughout time. There's a couple reasons that the bison crania was chosen for this study, namely that bison are used for decor. Drive throughout the basin and you'll see bison crania hanging on barns and fences, and if you're invited into a basin resident's home, you might find a bison crania over the fireplace or perhaps decorating the living room. Some are painted and some are not. The primary reason for this is quite simply that they're aesthetically pleasing. Through the study, we aimed to add a new dimension to this common decoration in the Bighorn Basin. And preservation is a huge part of that. These items are part of the archaeological record, and as such, they can tell us so much. If you think about the size of a bison, full bison crane, you know, from maxillary teeth to top of it, they're about that high. And they have to be in fairly unique settings to become fully buried unless they're, you know, to get covered up in a way that can encase and preserve that whole thing is very different than it takes to bury a projectile point. You can deal bury lithics in a couple centimeters. You'll need about 40 centimeters of sediment to bury and preserve a bison skull. So bison skulls, and we worked on sites where about the only parts of the bison skulls you find are things like the maxillary tooth rows, uh, the petrous portions, uh, the harder, denser things. And they almost look in some cases like they've been truncated, which is probably telling you there were depositional events, large portions which stand above the ground surface for a, a long period of time and deteriorate. We've excavated sites where as you're digging down through the sediments, you'll start coming upon these halos of fragments of little bits and pieces of stuff. And eventually when you get down into the, the central bone bed, you start recognizing that a lot of those fragments were cranial bits because you come down on the maxillary teeth, the basilar portions, the parts of the skull that were buried in um, a depositional event that would have preserved it. So I think in terms of which bones preserve best over long periods of time, from the bison carcass, the skulls, the crania, is probably fairly low on the list. But on the other side of that coin is those that do preserve are very distinctive. People today out wandering around the landscape, whether they see a bison skull partially buried in the duff in a pine forest or eroding out of a cut bank or this or that or the other, the, the big bison skull light bulb goes on because you recognize it as being 
um, that sort of thing. That's different. You know, most people, the, the light bulb doesn't come on when they see the distal humor, right? But the bison skull is identifiable, it's recognizable, and it probably gets much more attention than its sort of preservational history really merits. Wyoming is a windy place, and our depositional environment is not quick by any means. For each bison cranium to be buried, it demands a unique environment where sediments are deposited rather than taken away. In the Bighorn Basin, if you were to look at a map of which sites have bison crania, you would find hardly any. And yet, when we did this project, we found that bison crania had been picked up from throughout the basin. This tendency to pick up bison crania over other bits of the archaeological record, including lithics, which is just a fancy word for stone tools, but even other parts of the bison itself, creates a unique and scattered dataset. The project had a goal of not only gathering the location information for where these bison came from, but we wanted to measure them. Are maybe one of the more complex organs to deal with in a bison's body. You've got um, sex differences, you've got nutritional differences, you've got social signaling differences, you've got body size differences, you've got evolutionary changes in morphology of horn cores. Um, one of the reasons that I've sort of steered away from the sort of taxonomic um, interpretations and analysis of bison cranias is I never felt clever enough to try and disentangle all those complex sets of information that go in to creating the variation in morphological shape and size of the crania. They're, they're information rich, but they're also real information complex. You can't just say it's diet, it's social behavior, it's sex, it's this or that or the other. It's, it's this complex mix of all of them that are changing, especially the morphology of the horn cores that are resulting in their changes through time. So um, I just never felt clever enough to engage in the work it would take to really try and extract and pull all those information sorts sets apart. But that doesn't mean that, like with the Bison Project, that, that those information sources should be ignored. They're there, and it's a, you took advantage of a rare opportunity to try and capture some of that information before it sort of dissipates. Dr. Cannon's work on the Gilbert Peak Bison can serve as an example for just how much information lies within the cranium. Serendipitous study that it was given to me by um, Byron Losey, who was the Wasatch Cache archaeologist at the time. And he had read an earlier study that I had done for the, um, the Salmon National Forest. There was an isolated bison skull that was recovered by one of the rangers. And um, we had been working up in, in that area for a while. And um, Steve Matz, the archaeologist up there, was a good friend of mine. And he said, you know, what? what we want to start looking at... Um, you know, the history of bison in, in central Idaho. What can you, what, what can we do with the skull? So I wrote a, a, a little bit of a study there for that one. And then, um, and then Byron had, had contacted me and said, Hey, you know, what, what, what can we do with this bison um, skull? What can we learn from it? And, um, and so they gave me a little bit of money and I, I was able to write up, you know, a lot about its ecology, about its age. Um, we were able to radiocarbon date it. Um, and also what was unique about that is it had um, the, the horn sheaths were still preserved. And the horn sheaths in some ways are very similar to, um, to tree rings in that they're incremental growth. Um, there's, there's a lot of um, discussion about whether they represent annual growth, but they do represent incremental growth that, that track 
the life of that that individual. Um, so uh, I was able to to sample each one of those those horn cores and get a really nice record of what what that bison was doing over the course of its life. That was uh, a pretty fun study. The Gilbert Peak bison was found in the Uinta Mountains of Utah. A radiocarbon date revealed that the Gilbert Peak bison lived between the years of 725 to about 778, give or take. I say give or take because radiocarbon dating is based on the fact that living things such as plants and animals have carbon-14 within the body, which remains relatively constant throughout their life. Upon the death of an organism, that carbon-14 begins to decay, which could be used to estimate when the animal lived, giving a range instead of an exact, this is the date of birth and this is date of death. In terms of how long the Gilbert Peak bison was alive, he lived about 12 years old, making him a mature bull bison. He was found at an elevation of 12,600 feet. At this point, you may be raising an eyebrow at the mere sample size of one bison. What if the Gilbert Peak bison was a bit of an oddball? Despite having just one bison cranium, there's much to be learned. You know, statisticians and and other people that that deal with large population sizes probably just get crazy about when we when we use one one bison for for analysis. But but there is a, a lot we can learn because these are are individuals that were um, that were living before the near extinction of bison in the 19th century. So they represent bison that were living naturally. They're not living in confined spaces and in highly managed environments um, like we have today. So it, it can tell us a lot about, you know, what, what that animal was doing and, and how it was living in a period of time before, you know, we, we almost lost bison. So even though it's, it's one individual, it's still there's still a lot we can we can learn from it. We we can learn about its migration. We can learn about its ecology, um, and we can also learn about you know how that bison um, what that bison looked like in relationship to the the climate regime that it was under that it was living within. This particular bison we dated to uh, between I think about um, 1725 and 1780, somewhere around in there. So so that period of time is is what's known as the Little Ice Age and. The argument is that the Little Ice Age saw increased um, increased moisture, lowered temperatures, um, but it also seemed to have increased biomass in a lot of areas. And and that was just a, kind of a general idea about what the Little Ice Age was about. But there were some um, some records. I think there are pollen records that showed that actually the, this time period in the in the 18th century saw a lot of really severe droughts. Some that were decades long, at least a decade long. So the uniformity of the of the Little Ice Age being this cold, wet period doesn't necessarily fit in certain parts of the of the country. And some of the isotopic data, particularly the nitrogen data from that bison, showed that this bison might was probably stressed, and it might have been stressed because of those those drought periods. Again, you know, it, it can inform us in how these individuals might have been reacting to these these climate shifts. And again, you know, it's there's a lot of caveats when we work with a with one sample like that. But again, it just it just shows what what we can learn. Um, if we had a hundred of them, that would be even greater. But you know, we we had this one; it was well preserved, and we had some fun with it. Over time, if enough individual bison like the Gilbert Peak bison are studied, you create a wealth of information that can be used to learn, for example, about bison in relation to climate across North America, or perhaps bison morphology in response to increased human population. Dr. Chris Widga has taken steps towards this wealth of information by creating a national database of bison crania. 
this grew out of an effort uh, in graduate school, actually, to basically kind of compile everything we knew about the morphology of bison in space and time. And I spent, you know, a few months just chasing down literature and grabbing measurements out of literature. Um, I, you know, called up people and said, hey, can you send me all of your data uh, on these skulls? I went from museum to museum to museum especially in the Great Plains where they had lots of bison skulls on display or in their collections of just measured stuff. Uh, and, you know, my approach was thinking, okay, the more samples I have uh, that represent different time periods and different places, the more these morphological patterns will make sense. You know, I was thinking that, okay, if we're dealing with kind of bigger bison populations at certain times, you might see horn core morphologies that reflect these bigger herds. Uh, if we see uh, different places where there's different vegetation. So in the Eastern US where we've got more trees, would you see uh, bison herds that are maybe smaller and or have different horn core morphologies? What I found was that there's <laughs> bison are confounding animals, and uh, inevitably, whenever I start collecting more and more data, the more confusing and complex the patterns are. And this was really something I found with the horn cord characteristics is that the the story we had always kind of uh, spun about bison evolution in North America was that you had a couple of bison that uh, were here during the Pleistocene. They had big horn cores um, or big horns. And then as you got into the Holocene, those horns shrunk in size and eventually you have modern bison. What I found was that especially at the late, in the late Pleistocene, you actually have a lot of variability in horn core morphology, uh, sometimes even within the same herd. So this was, kind of eye-opening to me, um, I'm still not sure what it means. I, I think that there's there's definitely utility in collecting these data. And I think eventually if you kind of have enough coverage uh, in space and time that, you know, they'll, they'll give you a really neat picture of how bison are adapting to a landscape. Um, Although at, right now, as the database stands, there's big holes in it. And, uh, and that's why I'm really excited about your project. You know, you're filling in some of those holes. Uh, you know, you're, you're adding to that database and, and making it so we can at least parts of it, we can start to kind of try and make more sense of it in light of what we know about climate changes and what we know about, uh, you know, grassland changes through the last 12,000 years or so. We compared the bison in the Bighorn Basin project to Dr. Woodgis' data set, and what we found was that all of the bison that we measured were on the smaller end of the spectrum. In other words, they're morphologically modern bison. This modern bison morphology arose roughly 3,000 years ago, and then wild bison disappear from the basin at the end of the 19th century. So that's as narrow of a window as we can get for the time frame of when these bison lived without radiocarbon dating. During this project, we measured 82 bison crania. To radiocarbon date them all would cost roughly $25,420. If we did radiocarbon date them, it would essentially allow us to place the bison on a timeline. 
We could also place things like the reintroduction of horses, the little ice age, and more on that same timeline. We could then run the measurements of the bison crania against those events and see if there's a statistically significant relationship between any of the variables. Correlation is not causation, though, so that would just be one step. A more complete understanding would come from analysis of stable isotopes. These stable isotopes are encoded within the teeth. They include things like carbon and strontium. The difference between C3 and C4 grasses, we're usually looking at stable carbon isotopes. Um, and, uh, and so C4 grasses are warm season grasses. They're grasses that do really well in the summer, like after a rainstorm, you'll see a bloom in C4 grasses. C3 grasses are what we call cool season grasses. So they grow most uh, during the late spring, during the late fall. Uh, they're the first to bloom and the last to bloom during a year. Um, and, but they also, C3 plants also include shrubs, herbs, trees, and so that's kind of this, this very coarse-grained uh, measure of what, it, what a bison diet is. When we, so, so stable carbon isotopes give us an idea of what they're eating. A lot of times they can give us an idea of what time of year they're eating what they're eating. Um, so we can get at some of these seasonal changes. So an understanding of what the bison are feeding on during their lifetime gives clues to what kind of environment they lived in. In other words, if there's a really high percentage of those cool season grasses, it might be a colder climate. If there's a lot of the C4 grasses, maybe it's a wetter climate. This can be anchored into place with strontium. I'm working on looking at, at strontium isotopes in the bison from Yellowstone and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And the strontium is, is linked to the geology. So um, the geology can be very distinct depending on what the bedrock geology is. Um, and so by looking at um, the strontium signatures, we, we, we can understand where, where those bison were, what their habitat was. And, you know, I've got three populations right now, one from Yellowstone National Park, one from Jackson Hole and then the Horner site, and they all look distinctly different. The bison that are up on the Yellowstone Plateau, their strontium signature is only is very similar to to um, the volcanics of the Yellowstone Plateau. In Jackson Hole, they're very different. They're sedimentary rocks, um, and uh, and their signature is is reflecting that. And the you know, the Horner site bison, their their signature looks very much like the sedimentary rocks that are that are in the Bighorn Basin. So from those small samples, and I you know it's 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 a small sample size, but it's it's showing that you know maybe these bison weren't migrating all that much or up and down the mountains. Maybe they're you know they're they're more sedentary or their their range sizes were very much smaller than, you know, some of the stories that we've created about these mass migrations of bison up and down the plains. So what does that tell us? You know, what does that um, tell us about, you know, if, when we're, we're thinking about reintroducing bison to different areas or we're thinking about the archaeological record and the predictability of, of animals for hunting? So, you know, so there's, there's those things that are just, um, we don't know. You know, I think those are real intriguing questions. And I think some of those sciences like the ELISA, like isotopes can really give us a very detailed, fine-scaled record of what those animals were doing during their lifetime. And we don't, you know, we don't have that except, you know, in small isolated populations like Yellowstone or uh, or some of the other parks around the country. But 
So, you know, so those, I think those data sets are incredibly important. And in Utah, we don't, we don't have anything, you know, the Gilbert Peak Bison is the, is the one that's in the record right now for, for Utah. So, so, and we know bison were in Utah, you know, we've got archaeological records of bison, we've got paleontological records of bison, but, but we don't know what they were doing. And we don't know what they look like, per se. So, so yeah, so those are, it's a, it's a very cool thing you guys are doing. The strontium analysis that Dr. Cannon has run on the Yellowstone Park, Jackson Hole, and Horner site bison would suggest that bison are not the massive migrators that we tend to think of. They actually didn't migrate that large of distance. Not like what we're thinking of, what we see in movies. That's likely not the case. They didn't travel those huge distances. For example, from Texas all the way up to the Dakotas and back. Um, They didn't seem to do that. They did, however, go in big numbers. That we know for sure. Um, and so what they would be doing is trying to follow what's called the spring green up, the green wave. They're trying to surf the green wave in springtime. And so what that means is that as spring is, is having the spring green up, you have brand new shoots of, of grass. They're, they're very nutritiously dense um, and they're great to eat if you're a bison. And so they're likely following that green wave. We see this in, in, in bison at Yellowstone. We see this in, in elk and, and pronghorn um, and multiple other species across North America where you, from the Great Plains into the Rocky Mountains, follow that spring green up. It's usually elevation or a latitudinal um, from south, south to north um, phenomenon. And so they're likely following that. And that would also then determine their calving grounds and breeding grounds throughout the season. And so you probably would have these smaller circles that would go from, for example, the panhandle of Texas into the mountains of New Mexico and Colorado and back. I don't, I don't know if that's an exact uh, case, but something in that, like that type of scenario. So it's not as huge as what we thought it was, but they did come for quite a bit of distance. This myth of migration is something that Jason Valdez has witnessed firsthand as bison returned to the Wind River Reservation. Really, the Wind River Indian Reservation is an island of habitat. We have hundreds of thousands of acres on this reservation for wildlife. And so there's uh, oftentimes very little need for our ungulate species to, to migrate out of the reservation because this reservation contains summer, sun, summer and winter habitat for our ungulate species. It'd be very similar to to buffalo. Um, when, you, when you establish a, a buffalo population to a new landscape, we always start with young animals. And this is because buffalo are matriarchal species. They're led by a, a lead female. And if you restore buffalo with an animal that's older and you put her in a new place, she's going to want to have uh, her home back. She's going she's gonna to try to go home. But if you start with young animals, then they become accustomed to the area in which they're located. There isn't a migratory need for buffalo unless they've been taught that by their, um, their grandmothers and mothers. And so if we brought buffalo here uh, and managed them as wildlife and we brought young animals in, there really isn't an anticipation of them migrating because they don't know where to migrate to. We can better understand migration in bison and the relationship between what they were doing in the past and what they're doing today through stable isotope analysis. 
We can get an understanding of where the bison lived in the past, what they were eating, and if that vegetation is present in the same places today. This can then help inform wildlife management. Of course, stable isotope analysis requires funding, but there's still progress being made without that funding. We covered earlier that bison are an extremely sexually dimorphic species, and encoded in their cranium is a lot of that information. We used a series of measurements in the Bison of the Bighorn Basin project to predict the likely sex of the 82 bison that we measured. This wasn't possible in all cases because some bison weren't complete enough to get these measurements, but we were able to separate the majority of the bison into female bison and male bison. Then using the same semi-log plot that Dr. Cannon used to estimate the Gilbert Peak bison's age at death, we ran most of the bison measurements. Unfortunately, we could not test all of the bison. The semi-log plot only has age predictions for fossil male, modern male, and fossil female bison. So any female bison that we had in the study, which are morphologically modern, could not be run through the semi-log plot. That wasn't the only complication. The semi-log uses measurements of the bison's forehead at its narrowest point, which is right behind the eye orbits. And when this measurement exceeded 270 millimeters, just about, the semi-log would give either ages outside of the range of a bison's lifespan or simply say it couldn't complete the calculation. So before we discuss our attempts to fix these problems, we have to know that bison aged at the same rate throughout time. There's always a caveat. For example, like when we look at tooth eruption and wear and um, attempt to assess season of kill in a bison site, um, we know now when that peak in bison birth season is on the seasonal cycle. And we know that that's tied to seasonal temperature differences and a whole series of things that um, bison are really good at, at being able to synchronize um, birth with those sorts of conditions. We don't know for sure um, when that birth pulse peak would have been at 10,000 years ago. But what we do know from looking at the patterns of tooth eruption and wear is that if you get a site that looks like it's a single event and you can start breaking out those age groups, the age groups are all real distinct. Uh, the, the calves of the year all have eruption and wear patterns that tell you that they were born in a secret synchronous peak. They were born within probably that several week period, just like bison are now. They all have the same facets on wear. The teeth are erupted the same. You know, if you go into um, a group of kindergartners here today, living primates in an in a area where we can study them at hand today. Um, the kids in a kindergarten class will have teeth in all sorts of stages of eruption where, you know, because of, of how we let them into that class. They can be born almost in any month of the year. Um, if you were to go into a bison population that has a distinct birth pulse, um, the vast majority, there's always gonna be a few out of season births, but the vast majority of them are born within that birth pulse. And we see indications of that sort of birth synchronicity in the fossil specimens that we find in kill sites that say there's, um, there's, some similarities there. We may not be able to say it was late April, early May. And that's one of the reasons why when we talk about seasonality in kill sites, we talk about months from the birth pulse rather than giving you an exact month on it of saying it's um, 0.6 
from birth poles rather than saying it's September, October. But you can break it down in because we don't know for sure where it was on that yearly cycle, but we know that it was um, pulsed. 10,000 years is probably not enough time for, um, for major differences in dental development to take place and formation of enamel sequences and stuff like that. Um, with, with things like um, Chris Wig has been doing, uh, the fine grain studies of tooth enamel through time, uh, we could probably expand on this understanding of uh, birth pulses and life histories and that sort of stuff. So this is one of those questions that's, that's really fun. Um, we have some initial sort of ideas, but like most things in archeology, span um, the things we don't know about it vastly exceed the little bits we, we, the little glimmers of understanding we do have. Instead of looking at the teeth, we're attempting something probably more difficult by looking at cranial morphology to estimate age. To refine the semi-log plot and see if there are potentially measurements that can be used to estimate age more accurately, we're working with the Antlers Ranch to measure bison crania of known ages. Since the bison ranch is in the Bighorn Basin, the bison are responding to many of the same variables that their prehistoric counterparts in the study did as well. This hopefully will work to simplify some of those complexities that Dr. Todd mentioned earlier, which would just make for a more accurate model. But bison in commercial production, like some of the conservation herds, have a certain amount of cattle genetics. So how does this affect their cranial morphology? Well, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think there is, that is something somewhat of concern um, because bison tend to be bigger um, than cattle. Um, so if you're introducing cattle into their, their size may be somewhat diminished. I, yeah, I haven't really thought about that hard, but I think that's something that we, that needs to be part of our our discussion or at least our thought process if we if we are using those those modern animals if the bison that we use to refine the semi-log plot have cattle genetics it could potentially sway the model and result in younger estimated ages for genetically pure bison if we were to dna test bison from the study we could look at that cattle genetic variable and see how much of a difference it makes in cranial morphology but this can also be used to help with wildlife management. The bison crania in our study come from before the bottlenecking event at the end of the 19th century. So to DNA test these bison, we would be able to look at what genetic diversity has been lost, and we could potentially see how that impacts them today. I asked all of our bison experts for their thoughts on the bison project and where we go from here. I'll let Chris go first since he also works for a museum. <laughs> this was, we had a really good conversation when we were talking about this. <laughs> but I, I guess when we were talking about wilderness and how, you know, people look out over a landscape and they see this, this pristine kind of idea uh, that may or may not have much basis in reality. As an archaeologist, paleontologist, paleoecologist, whatever you want to call me, a lot of times I look out on that landscape and I see a time machine. You know, we you you see this landscape, but then if you know kind of the the, the history of that landscape, then you know that what you are seeing is really ephemeral. It is the product of potentially of even weather, or it might be just the product of 10 years of overgrazing, or it might just be uh, that we, we stopped, uh, we removed elk uh, or wolves from the landscape for a decade or two. 
Uh, and, and it can completely change over human timescales. And the value of a project like this Matisse Bison project is that you're kind of traveling back in time. You know, you're able to kind of tether the landscape around you to some sort of uh, kind of ecological change and climate change and that sort of thing. And so that's the science side of it and the importance of it. You're, you're creating this geographically constrained time machine. The other part of it that I really, really like is that it's connecting people straight to that record. It's connect. It's taking people back in time. Uh, if they're bringing in a bison skull, it is a connection that they have to pre-bottleneck bison populations when these were roaming the landscape. And it's, and it's an avenue for discussing some of these processes and discussing that history. So, so that, that's kind of why I, I really like the Matitsi Bison Project. It, it's, it works at so many levels. It, it's helping us with the science, but it's also really connecting to uh, local folks who see this landscape every day and may see it as unchanging, which kind of comes back to some of the things that we've discussed at the scale of a single human lifetime. Some of these ecological changes and climate changes are not near as obvious as they are if we really push back in time further. So, so dare I make another analogy that bison is not only the bridge, but also the vehicle of which we cross the bridge. Again, back to plurality. I, I think it's uh, very important in, in bridging understanding. You know, the, the history of Buffalo is intertwined with, with Native American people. And contemporarily, there's still a lot of misconceptions about tribes and our communities and you know, things like the the um, Native American education bill in Wyoming is an attempt to help young people understand a bit more about that history as a, an attempt to bridge again uh, understanding and so I think you know the the project that that you have is is important but I think the next step of that is is really how you engage people and and bridge you know the the knowledge so that contemporarily people can understand what we're trying to do with buffalo or bison in uh, restoring our communities and our connection to that animal culturally and again ecologically as as a, as a keystone species there's a lot of policy that we can direct towards the health of our landscapes and you know, buffalo is the is the vehicle for that conversation too and so that's the answer to it all. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that I get excited about the Matizzi, um project for, uh, the, the data and those sorts of things that you've been talking about there uh, are, and the connections are very important. But I see it as this springboard to the discussion of stewardship of a lot of these resources. Um, and as people bring in their bison skulls, even though you don't hit them over the head with it, it's a good way to sort of introduce the idea that maybe that entitlement to extract and possess isn't the only way to deal with encountering things on the landscape and that bison skulls aren't just the the premier decoration to have over your fireplace that there are other data sets and that can be extended to other things that people like to extract and possess out of the landscape so a project like this can be a starting point to talk about other other kinds of stewardship issues and interaction of contemporary interactions with landscapes to help preserve them into the future yeah and i think um you know following up with you know chris and larry and everyone was talking about is you know this is kind of the ultimate you know citizen science project in, in a lot of ways. Um, and then, you know, in 
just by people understanding what what can be learned from those from those species, I think it does elevate it. And you know, especially now, and you know, not to get into politics, but there's you know this this anti-science sentiment out in the in the world that's very acute and troubling. And you know, this is a way to to show it's not just you know a cool ornament for your. Um, for above your fireplace, but there's lots of value in, in what we can learn from this. Uh, and especially when we start thinking about, um, you know, like, like Chris was talking about with, with viewing landscapes over a long period of time, you know, let's, let's talk about what happened in the 1870s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, where we took 30 million bison, you know, if, that, if we want to use that number, and reduced them to a couple hundred you know, 19 in Yellowstone in 1904, you know, maybe, maybe a couple hundred at the most, you know, holy cow, how did we do that? You know, and let's get our, you know, people to start thinking about getting our minds around that as we continue to see degradation of our, of our landscapes and exploitation of our landscapes. Well, this was, you know, if, if you want to talk about exploitation, you know, how do we do that? How do we, how did we do that in the 19th century? It's just, to me, I still can't get my head around how we, how we did that. Ken Burns is making a film, anticipate that in 24 or 25, but he's delving into the deep history of the bison story. So they are they are working on a uh, documentary. Ken, and Ken Burns tells an interesting story. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Studies of bison in the past are really exciting because it can impact our understanding of them today on the landscape. If you're not convinced, please join us next episode for a roundtable discussion between all of our bison experts. If you would like to donate to the Bison of the Bighorn Basin project, visit the Matitsi Museum's website and click donate in the upper right-hand corner, and then you can pick the Bison of the Bighorn Basin project as your specific donation. Please remember to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening so that people can find us easier and so that we can do better next time.